You ever have to be reminded about something? You ever think you know what's going on, but for some reason you keep forgetting? You keep forgetting to take out the trash, some of us. You keep forgetting to take care of the things with the kids. You keep forgetting what you promised and your child reminded you two days before you're supposed to go do what you promised you were going to do. All of us have reminders in our lives over different things that we tend to forget. What's amazing is that we remind others what they need to pay attention to, and we don't like when someone reminds us, right? I don't know if you're that way, I know I am. I don't like when someone tells me, hey, you kind of forgot about this, or you weren't paying attention here. And I want to start off this morning by saying that God wants us to be aware of certain things, to be aware of certain things in our lives. This morning, we're going to be looking at three things here as we finish out the book of 1 John. Number one, sin's defeat, verse 18. Number two, outside influence, verse 19. And number three, divine understanding, verses 20 and 21. So number one, sin's defeat, verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. What John is essentially doing here is repeating what he said earlier in the book. And I don't know if you've ever read a book where there's almost like a re-emphasis at the end to re-emphasize points that were made earlier in the book. That's what John's doing here. In fact, if you were to go back in chapter 3, verse 9, you'd read this. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Knowing that we've been changed from the inside out and God's seed remains in us, we have no obligation to sin. We have protection against sin because of the new birth. We don't need to give in. We don't owe sin anything. And yet so many of us still live so defeated. As a believer, we need to realize that sin still has a pull on us, especially when we look throughout this book. To remind us what John has already covered, let's recap some of what has been mentioned regarding sin. Number one, being born again does not mean sinless. Being born again does not mean being sinless. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's the first thing that we see is that being born of God, being born again, does not mean that we are now sinless. Number two, we read right in the beginning of chapter two, 1 John 2, 1, victory over sin is possible. Victory over sin is possible. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Believer, I don't know about you this morning, but if you believe that there's no such thing as victory over sin, then you're not reading God's word for what it says. There is victory over sin. That is a promise of scripture. And unfortunately, we don't believe that promise. We like to believe other promises in our lives, but victory over sin seems to be the one that we just go, eh, maybe for somebody else. But victory over sin is possible for any of us if we have the Holy Spirit. Number three, abiding is the key to victory. So if you want to have victory over sin, you need to abide in the vine. 1 John 3, verse 6 says this. 
Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. The life of the believer is abiding with Christ. It's abiding in the vine. And when we do not abide, we fall into sin. When we disconnect from who Jesus has called us to be and our identity with him, we begin to sin. We fall into traps in our lives. Victory is only possible if you and I are abiding. If we are making an intentional walk with God a priority. You don't stumble into holiness. None of us do. You stumble into sin because that's by default where you go. Intentional walk with God is necessary to have victory over sin. You cannot say that I will walk with God faithfully as a father, mother, sister, brother, child, and not make it a priority to make God's word important in my life. To not make prayer important in my life. Those things do not happen by accident. Another thing that John specifically mentions here is prayer aligns us with God's view of sin. In 1 John 5, verse 16, it says this, If anyone, we just talked about this, his, sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Prayer aligns us to God's view about sin. If you want to walk in fellowship with God, if you want to walk consistently with God, then prayer needs to be a priority. And it isn't important just for you and I to pray about our own struggles, but to also pray for the struggles of others. You see, the problem with the church is we jump to judging someone before praying for them. We jump to condemning what they're living rather than praying for the way that they're living. And that's what John is trying to encourage us to do is, hey, you see a brother or sister, they're struggling. Pray for them. Pray for them. How many things could change in a church that prays for one another rather than condemns one another? How many things would change in a church if when we saw a marriage that's struggling, we prayed for that marriage rather than going, my goodness, what is up with them? Imagine the things that would change if we made a prayer a priority rather than the condemnation. As we finish out the book, John emphasizes one more thing in addressing the topic of sin in a believer's life. In fact, here's what we read. John lets us know. Number five, endurance has been given against sin. I don't know if you believe that, but that's what the scripture says. Endurance has been given against sin. 1 John 5, 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he doesn't stop there. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. What's truly the most heartbreaking thing about sin in a believer's life is that they do not understand their identity as a child of God, nor do they believe God in this promise specifically regarding their sin. Oh, we believe God will take care of other things. Have you ever believed God for other people but not yourself? Have you ever believed that God could do something in someone else's life, but then you look at your own, you're like, I don't know about me. I'm like an impossible cause here. I pray for my kids. I hope that it works out. I believe God can do something in their life. But me, look at me. Believer, let me remind you that God's given you the same Holy Spirit that he's given other people. 
It isn't as if you got a smaller portion of the Holy Spirit. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, just like the other believer is. There's not an extra blessing for some people. There's a filling that needs to happen. There's a walk with God that needs to be maintained. But the Holy Spirit's still the same Holy Spirit. The endurance might not seem possible to many followers of Christ. Look at what Jesus actually prays about for his own back in John. In John 17, 15, notice what Jesus actually prays for. This is for those that will believe one day. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. What Jesus is essentially praying for is that you and I endure. That we are able to fight against wickedness and evil and sin in our lives. Here's the part that should motivate you to endure, to exercise more self-discipline in your fight against sin. And I need you to, to, to pause for a moment and take this in, okay? Jesus is praying for you. Jesus has prayed for you, is praying for you, and will continue praying for you. That's the advocate that he is. So when you're thinking, man, I'm failing him, realize that he knows and he cares. And you're not just a number to him. You're not just one of the scores of people that have come to saving faith. You're his own child. Just as Peter was prayed for by Jesus that his faith would endure, Jesus prays for us that we would endure. You also have others that are praying for your endurance as well. I don't know if you know that, believer. Can, can I tell you transparently as a pastor that there are many of you that I pray for a lot because I see that you're struggling with a lot of things. And it does not mean that I'm judging you. I'm praying for you because I truly want you to get out of the funk you're in. It's hard to watch people in your church struggle against sin and they think they're alone and you're trying to encourage them and they don't take that encouragement properly because they don't see it, because they don't see the product at the end result that you are going to be conformed to Jesus. That's the promise of Scripture. The most devastated believer is going to be conformed to Christ one day. The most, what seems to be hopeless case is going to be conformed to the image of Christ one day. That should be an encouragement to every one of us to get back up as a righteous man even after we fall. Because one day we will be like him. We will see him as he is. The greatest encouragement that we could have as a believer is that the very Savior we say that we believe died for our sins is caring enough to also pray for us. You see, Jesus didn't just die on your behalf and rise again. He's continually praying for you as well. And I don't know how much you've been reminded of that this last week. Have you even thought of the fact that Jesus is praying on your behalf? He's taking that before the Father. He's your advocate. He's pleading on your behalf. I don't think we take that in. I think many times our image of Jesus is he did this in the past and I know one day I'll meet him, but in the present I don't really believe that he's doing these things. 
Believer, even right now as you're hearing these words, Jesus is advocating on your behalf. And I need you to take that in. You see, when you see the phrase, the wicked one does not touch in this text, realize that there's more than what you're probably assuming here. This is the idea that the wicked one, Satan, cannot grab a hold of you as a believer. You're, chi- you're a child of God. Believers need to stop arguing this way. Satan made me do it. Satan can't make you do anything. If you're a child of God, you have the ability to resist. Of course there are three different areas that you need to struggle against, and we talked about them not too long ago. The world, the flesh, and the devil. All three of those need to be resisted. But Satan can't make you do it. You still choose to do it. The idea here is that Satan cannot alter your connection with God in any way. You are Christ. Oh, Satan can do some things to damage things in your life, but he can't take away what God's already given you. He can't take away your status. You're a child of God, that doesn't change. It doesn't change based on your performance. If you're a parent and you have children, it doesn't matter how, what they do, they're still your children. Once you've been adopted in the family of God, that doesn't change. You're forever in the family of God. The idea here is that Satan cannot snatch you out of God's hand. Do you really believe that, believer? Like, we all, we all like, believe the doctrine of eternal security, right? That we are eternally secure by the Father and the Son. Do you really believe that Satan doesn't have anywhere near the influence that you think he does in your life? Do we really believe that Satan truly cannot do something to us apart from what God allows? He may attack, he may tempt, but he can never take away what's been sealed by the Holy Spirit. I love what the psalmist says, right? My heart and my flesh may fail me, but God is my portion. You can have things fall apart in your life and still be God's. Don't let Satan deceive you into thinking that when everything's going bad, that God doesn't care anymore. That's not true. If that's the standard, then you probably haven't been reminded enough in the Bible how many people went through quite a bit. And God loved them. God was faithful to them. John the Baptist didn't exactly have a wonderful way out in this life. Positive, encouraging Caleb. No, definitely not. Sin may be alluring and it may be attractive, but God has given you all the tools necessary, believer, to fight the sin in your own life, including a Holy Spirit that seals you until the day of redemption. There's a guarantee you're going to make it. I'm going to repeat that. There's a guarantee that you're going to make it. God does not fail. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God promises he will deliver? 
I'm not talking about your reliance on yourself. I'm asking you, do you believe that when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it? It's a guarantee you are his permanently if the Holy Spirit indwells you. Permanently. That does not change, it cannot be altered. In the words of the famous quote from Ten Commandments, so let it be written, so let it be done. That's how it is. Doesn't change. We may change, God doesn't. His promises are always true. It may not seem like it this last week, this last month, this last year, maybe this last decade. It doesn't seem like everything's going the way I want. It doesn't seem like God really is for me. But the truth is, he always has been, he always will be, if you're his child. Even in discipline, he loves you. Even when it hurts, he loves you. In your joy and your sorrow, he loves you. Being aware of sin's defeat does not mean that we walk through life oblivious to the dangers of spiritual warfare, though. Just because we know there can be victory over sin does not mean that we are now Pollyannas pretending everything's fine. Number two, outside influence. Verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Once we've established our connection to Christ, we do not roam this world oblivious to the spiritual warfare behind the scenes. Believer, if you don't believe spiritual warfare exists, you'll be duped every time. Behind every lost person or unbeliever is a spiritual entity, Satan, who influences and manipulates. You and I, as believers, need to view people the way that God does. We need to know what scripture clearly states. Knowing the very person you want to reach with the gospel is a person under the control or sway of Satan himself or his demons. That's one important truth you and I must realize. Too many Christians think that they, if they're just nice enough, do enough, accommodate enough, they'll win others to Christ. That is not the message of scripture. You and I do not cater to people in order to win them to Jesus. We have an understanding of who they are, where they're coming from, but we remember that there's a spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes. Let's take a look at what Scripture says when it comes to the influence others are under and how we ought to view those outside the faith. Believer, it's important for us to think biblically when we approach others. Not just assume that we know best how to reach others for Christ. So number one, here's a truth that we need to see clearly in Scripture. Enemies of the gospel needing reconciliation. Enemies of the gospel needing reconciliation. Romans 5, 9 through 11. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. 
Believer, when you're trying to reach anybody that does not know God, does not know Christ, you need to realize that they're an enemy that needs to be reconciled with God. Stop using flowery language that we're not enemies. They're an enemy of the gospel. They're an enemy of God, and so are you. That's the truth we need to make sure we clearly see in Scripture. We are enemies once that needed reconciliation with God, and we are bringing others to that same realization that they themselves need to be reconciled with God. To assume any different is no longer believing what Scripture teaches. We are not all good people just looking to better ourselves. I'm sorry for that wonderful garbage that we believe. That's a lot of Christianity today. We're all good people just looking to improve ourselves. Nowhere to be found in Scripture. Number two, enemies of the gospel to be loved. Enemies of the gospel to be loved. Romans eleven twenty eight, then Matthew five forty three through forty five. Romans eleven twenty eight says this concerning the gospel. This is referring to the nation of Israel. They are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Though the Jewish people have rejected their Messiah, they are still loved based on the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are both enemies and still loved. In Matthew 5, Jesus makes a statement to us as his disciples. Verses 43 through 45, he says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Listen, believer, here's, here's the part that I think is hard sometimes as we try to theologically think through these things. God still loves the world, and he loves his own differently. You need to understand that. He loves his creation, giving them common grace. And he loves his children with a special love. He asks us to do the same. His love for his own is different, but there is a love for humanity that he calls us to exhibit to our enemies as well. You need to remember the words that Jesus himself said on the cross before you start arguing whether God loves other people or not. What were Jesus' words on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? Was he talking about his disciples there? No. It's important that you have a balanced view of God and not swing one extreme or the other when it comes to his love and his wrath. God is balanced in all, he's majestic and perfect in all of his attributes. And he wouldn't ask us to do something that he himself doesn't exhibit. There are three ways that we see this in this text. Number one, bless them. Be a source of blessing to those that are around you that do not know God. Speaking the truth in love, not slandering or belittling them. Your goal is not to continue to create more strife. Your goal is to be a blessing to those that do not know God. Number two, to do good. Not trying to merely one-up them or get back at them for what they've done, but rather responding with grace as much as possible. 
This does not mean that you lack wisdom, as some may influence you in a bad direction, right? You have to remember Scripture as a whole, that some people can lead you down the wrong path. That's not what we're talking about here. If you're not sure, ask God for wisdom. God promises that he'll deliver on that. He gives wisdom to those that ask. Remember, friendship with the world and its ungodly influences are at odds with God, so you've got to keep that in mind as well. And number three, pray for them. Seems like such a simple thing, right? I just need to pray for people. Instead of complaining, pray for people. Pray for your enemies outside the faith, or even a personal enemy that you may have problems with. You can have personal enemies as well. Your first response may be, God, please strike them right now. That might not be the right response. And don't think that because someone's opposing you that God is not aware. It's amazing how many problems we have with others that are simply resolved the moment we commit to pray for them. There are so many assumptions that you would not have and I would not have if we prayed for people that we had problems with. You think about it. When you pray, you're literally leaving it to God to deal with. You're going, God, listen, I have no idea what to do here. I have no clue how to respond. Please bless them. Please help them to see it. Please help me to respond properly. You know what? You don't feel anywhere near the bitterness you do when you don't pray. You don't feel any of the tension that you do when you don't pray. And number three, here's what we see. Enemies of the gospel are spiritually dead. Philippians 3, 17 through 19, Ephesians 6, 12, and Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Let's start with Philippians 3, 17 through 19. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have seen have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Listen, believer, you need to understand that the paradigm that people live under compared to you as a believer are different. It's a very different paradigm, different worldview. What you're seeing and what they're seeing are not the same thing. They're spiritually dead. You're spiritually alive. You can't understand how to reach someone with the gospel if you don't understand, as the text back in 1 John tells us, that they are under the sway of the wicked one. Believer, you need to always remember when you and I are talking to someone that does not know Christ, that they are under the sway of Satan. This isn't just a person in a bad mood that day or just not getting it that day. That's a spiritually dead person who is influenced by Satan. We need to start seeing people the way God sees them rather than the way that we've been taught in many Christian circles today. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Your battle is not with that person you're trying to reach. Your battle is with the spiritual force behind that person. 
And until you and I grasp the reality of the spiritual walk with God is something that people do not understand who do not know God, then we're going to constantly try to reframe it all the time based on what culture is telling us. You and I have been more influenced by the culture than we would like to admit. We let others influence our perspective of the gospel and how others are to respond because we don't know our Bible as well. You have to be constantly reminded that what you were, what I was, was a child of the devil who didn't know any better. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, I know most of you are familiar with this text. You've grown up in the church. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So believe it, what you don't get over, what I don't get over as we read this text, is what we once were, we need to understand when we're reaching people. You were spiritually dead. You were literally a tool of Satan, for lack of a better way of saying it. And the people that you're trying to reach are influenced by those same entities. The spiritual forces. God does not want you just to realize that there's victory over sin, that there are outside spiritual forces at work. He also wants you to continually grow in your understanding of him. It's one thing to be aware of all those other things, but number three, divine understanding, verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. God did not give you spiritual life just so you can learn some new things in your life's journey. This is essentially what we as Christians do sometimes. Well, I've learned some new things along the way, just like everybody has. Isn't that the human experience? Isn't that what we would naturally say to our kids, even if we weren't Christians? I've learned some things when I was your age. It's part of life. God is wanting more for that, for us on that. He wants us to know him more personally, more intimately. To understand him on a deeper level. To not know more facts about him, but to know him. He gave you this life so you can know him on a more intimate level. So many think that they've attained all there is to know of God by neglecting the Bible. See, you can say, I want to know God better. I want to know him more. And you know what you tell him when you don't care about this? You don't really want to know him better. You really don't want to know him more. Stop lying. Tell the truth. Look in the mirror and say, God, I'm lying right now. When you and I neglect to pray, we talk about how we want to spend more time with God. How often do we make prayer a priority for ourselves and for our families? 
Unfortunately for some of us, the reason why people like praying sometimes is they like to hear themselves talk. They don't want to hear from God. They'd rather say something themselves. And many times our prayers are not aligned with God's will for that reason. We talked about that last week. We pray selfish prayers that have nothing to do with God's word because God's word is not a priority to us. All the while, we have the spiritual lingo down, right? We talk the talk. We know how to say it. Sounds good. We say we want to know God more intimately, but our lives prove quite the opposite. We are more interested in improving other areas of our life apart from him. Have you ever tried to improve things in your life that are going wrong apart from God and his word? You ever done that? Like, I'm just going to read something by somebody else. I don't really need God's take on this. I don't think he really can help in this area. When God's word really can give you insight that really will surpass anything else that's been given. If you want to know how to be a better husband, you don't think the picture that Jesus gives us is much better than that author who's had three failed marriages that you just found out about after you read their marriage book? Oh, he gave you great advice. Three marriages in. The Bible encourages you to see things through a different worldview. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I think has probably blown me away the most as I read the Bible is when I walk through this life and realize how many things are broken in my own life. How many things are broken in my family's life? How many things are broken in my family growing up? I realize one thing when I read through the Old Testament, especially if you read through the book of Genesis. My goodness, families are jacked up. They got some real problems. And you know what I realize in seeing that? That God knows that. It's not like my circumstance is so much harder for him to deal with. I mean, try Joseph's example in the Bible. You think you have it tough. Imagine being sold off by your own brothers. How's that for love? Your own brother sells you off to slavery. And you're not just there for a short time. You're there for many years. Only to find out later on that that's what God needed to use to give them Support and help later on. That's how God works. And, and I want to kind of stop for a moment and kind of remind you of that and myself that, that many of the things that we struggle with in this life are truly God's providential hand that we don't see the end result of yet. We don't see how the end result's going to be good when this is so bad right now. How can I believe God when it's all bad right now? Like everything looks like a failure in my life. We don't believe the verses that say we're more than conquerors, right? Like, it's everybody else. I'm not more than a conqueror. Look at me right now. Truth is, as we finish the text, it's important to understand that there's a promise and a command that's, that's finished in this book that we need to pay attention to. The last thing that John states here is that we are to keep ourselves from idols. There isn't to be an intentional thing in our lives that we do if we want to have a more intimate walk with God. If we want to have this understanding that we want to know him who is true, we are in him who is true, his son Jesus Christ. And this is the part that's so important, believer, before we get to this last part. 
This is the true God and eternal life. Listen, your life is found in him. Not found, found in your stuff. And the way you see that is what he finishes the, the book off with. That's why it's a command. Keep yourselves from idols. Idolatry is simply putting anything above God as priority. Good things that we turn into a God in our lives. Listen, God wants us to be wise stewards of our money. But unfortunately, so many times we serve money hoping that it somehow gets us closer to God and then we can argue that it's a good thing because we're blessed. God clearly tells us that serving money and serving him are at odds with one another. Serving God and money are incompatible. Yet we think that by doing that, we simply are gaining more for ourselves and then we use spiritual lingo, I've been so blessed. I'm accumulating and I've been so blessed. It's an idol that'll fail us. You want to prove that money is not an idol. Money is not what you worship. Prove it by being a more giving person. Be willing to give when God tells you to give. Be willing to sacrifice when God tells you to sacrifice. Be willing to do what God's called you to on that. And that may look different for you than someone else. Don't live for the almighty dollar. For crying out loud, it's dropping in value. Prove it by making God a priority in your finances and over your personal desires. God gives you things to enjoy, but he refuses to be swapped as God for those things. God is not giving you good gifts so you can say, I love the gift, forget the giver. God wants us to love our families as we ought to. But we at times worship our own image of what that looks like. We agree when we like what it says, right? As parents, we're like, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I love that verse as a parent. How are we doing in applying the other stuff? We neglect to do what God says as fathers and mothers and training them up in the way that we, they should be trained up. That means not leaving them to fend for themselves in areas that are foolish. One of the worst things Christians can ever make when they're parenting their kids is to go, my kids will figure it out one day. Uh, no, God gave them you. You are to help them figure it out. You're responsible. God's given you that responsibility. And parents, don't ever fall for the trap. Oh, I remember what I was like when I was a kid. That doesn't, that, that's not like God goes, you know, here's an exception. Because you had a sinful past, you're right. You don't need to worry about parenting in that area. That's foolishness. Don't buy into that. Discipline at home is important to us. To neglect it is to go against God's own standard that he has for his own children, of which you are one. To argue that discipline is not necessary while saying God disciplines is saying I don't want to align with God's view. Your children learn who you serve and how you treat your own parents as an adult. Do you honor your parents? Is that something that your children go, you know what? I see that mom and dad honor their parents. Like nobody's arguing that parents can't have rough relationships with children. You read the Bible, it happens. 
but to honor them is not optional. Your sons will learn what it means to be a husband father and how you treat your wife and how you treat your children. Your daughters will learn what it means to be a wife and mother and how you treat your husband, how you treat your children. Don't put family on such a pedestal. I've learned that personally in my life. We thought we had everything perfect. And God did, did some, how can I say this, some work in our family. When God kind of reveals that the picture-perfect family that you think you're painting isn't the real one, you're humbled by that. And you remind yourself that I need to lean into grace a lot more and stop thinking of myself like I've got it figured out. Putting family on a pedestal will disappoint one day. If it hasn't already. God wants us to love our church but some have their own idea of what that looks like. They think the perfect church exists and forget that only Jesus himself is perfect. Stop worshiping the perfect that isn't even real. The church, when she doesn't live up to the expectations, crushes this person's heart when someone doesn't say hi to them, write them a letter, call them up, encourage them. When the church is praying for the restoration to the body, it offends them. The church is loved by Christ, and we should be his hands and feet. But the church is fractured and broken, which is why Jesus came. Expecting from the church what only Christ can deliver is idolatry. Brothers and sisters, we ought to love one another as Christ has called us to. But not a single one of us can stand before God or others and say that we have fulfilled the perfect standard that he's called us to. And we fail. doesn't mean that we ought not to hold people accountable and that sin should not be dealt with as we saw earlier in the book of 1 John here. We just need to make sure that our standard is God's and not our own preconceived idea. So many cling to a perfect image of others that they themselves never follow. I say this all the time and I will always say this. If you're the person that says that the church is not welcoming, it's not, it's not cordial, it's not friendly, are you friendly, are you cordial, are you welcoming? Because many times what ends up happening is the very things that are lacking in our own lives we're trying to find in others. We're trying to find everybody else to fill the void that we have in our own lives. The most destructive God that many follow, though, is themselves. Their own desires, their own thoughts, their own dreams... We eat too much to make ourselves happy. We're too concerned about our self-image, so we end up starving ourselves to look the part. It goes both ways. Worshiping ourselves is one of the most destructive things that we can do. We're a God that continually fails. And you know that as soon as sin is mentioned. Doesn't matter what we consider will benefit us if we ourselves are the ones we worship we will continually be lacking. 
God gave you all the tools so you could go back to him, not to look to yourself. Don't live life confidently as a Christian in your own strength and think that you've got it figured out. Our desire should be Paul's desire. Yet, to many of us, thinking of reading the Bible is boring to us. The sermon isn't what I'd prefer today. People aren't what they should be. Prayer is just something we do before a meal and occasionally at night. Paul had a lot to brag about when it came to his walk with God and his qualifications. But listen to his perspective. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. You're familiar with this text. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Listen to how he says this here. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's desire is very different than ours many times. You see, all these things, and we argue with ourselves, like, that's not an idol in my life, that can't be an idol in my life, that's a good thing in my life. Good things can become idols. Good things are poor replacements of God. Because God's the best thing. And as we close, I want you to ask yourself this question, are you aware? Are you aware? Are you actually alert to these things that John finishes the book off with? Are you aware as a believer that you can have victory over sin? That it isn't a wasted cause in fighting? You don't have to keep living defeated and hopelessly, constantly looking back at your performance thinking it's impossible. Don't give up just because you fall. Just as that promise starts off in 1 John, it still applies. You will sin, you need to confess sin. And God is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That promise still stands. It isn't just a promise God made to you years ago, he makes that promise today. He keeps that promise. Are you aware of outside influences in others' lives and even in your own life? You need to see beyond this life as you try to reach others with the gospel. If you're not a child of God, then this is usually where you are stuck thinking that this life is all there is. That's essentially what John is saying, is that people live for the here and now. You're watching this online, and you might be thinking, none of this makes sense to me. I'm fully aware, I just don't agree with Christianity. You're spiritually blind. You don't have eyes to see. This is why the gospel needs to penetrate a spiritually dead person. Just like it had to do that with all of us. We need to be given new life. You might not think you're an enemy of God, but you are. You don't know Christ. He that believeth not is condemned already. 
Believer, be aware of the spiritual forces at work in those around you. Do not be oblivious of those things. Do not think in naturalistic, materialistic perspectives all the time. Remember, there's a spiritual world that many are not aware of, that you need to be aware of. Be reminded that Christ is interceding on your behalf. And as we close, are you aware that God desires you to know him more personally? God longs for that from all of us as his children. Rather than simply corporately coming together as the body of Christ, but for you to personally make him a priority in your life. You need to realize that so many things that you consider are harmless and good can very easily be idols that you've swapped for him. It's amazing that John picked that right at the end to put the end of his letter. Keep yourselves away from idols. What a close. Like you'd think it'd be some marvelous, God is amazing, do this. He goes, keep yourselves from idols. Just as a reminder, don't swap him for other things. You have to stay away from idols that are clearly visible in your own life. Knowing your own idols may be different from someone else's. This is one of the biggest things I just want to, in closing, say. Do not take your idol to be a better idol than someone else's. Just because yours is more cute doesn't make it any better. Idols are idols and they all fail us. God is the only one worthy of our worship and our dedication and devotion. Don't swap one idol for another, thinking that'll help solve the problem. Make God the priority, just as it was for Paul, to know him.